Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Hello and welcome to the Secret Library Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Donahue, and ever since I was little, I've been obsessed with books. So I started this show to interview authors and those behind the book so that we can learn not just why they mean something to us, but where they come from. Welcome to the Secret Library Podcast. I'm really thrilled today to have Eden LaPucky, who you may have heard of. Um, she's She has some very interesting coverage of her second novel, which we will talk about. Well, first novel, she'd written a novella before. She's the author of the novella, If You're Not Yet Like Me, which was published by Flatman Crypt and was re-released recently by Novella Press. Um, She was named a face to watch for 2014. And then her debut novel, California, was published by Little Brown. Actually, we're almost up to the two-year anniversary, July 8th, 2014. And it debuted at number three on the New York Times bestseller list and has been number one bestseller on the Los Angeles Times and San Francisco Chronicle bestseller list. It's been on the IndieBound and Publishers Weekly bestseller list. And it was a fall selection uh, in 2014 for Barnes & Noble's Discover Great New Writers program. And Eden and Stephen Colbert are besties, which is pretty great. <laughs> and I'm excited to have Eden on also because, full disclosure, Eden has also been my writing teacher um, she runs a writing school called Writing Workshops LA, um, which understandably takes place in Los Angeles. And I have taken a lot of classes with Eden and have been chastised about my long sentences very thoroughly by her excellent skills. So I'm happy to have you here both as a writing teacher and as a really great writer yourself. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited of to be here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I really wanted to talk about, I was excited to talk to you at this point in time because you had, which we can talk about too, a really unusual experience promoting your, um, promoting California and are now in the process of writing another book, Woman Number 17. And I'm wondering how the process of writing California and putting it out there kind of pre-Colbert and writing this book now post kind of explosive coverage has been for you. Maybe we should tell them like a quick nutshell of what happened. Yeah, like, what are you Thank talking you. about? <laughs> um, Everybody knows this story. It's really interesting. A lot of people know it and then some people, I love when somebody has read my book and they haven't even, they never have seen, Col- they don't even know who Stephen Colbert is. <laughs> but that's always exciting when they just came upon my book randomly. That feels good too. Um, but in the spring of 2014, a couple weeks, a few weeks before my book was coming out, um, Hachette, the larger publisher who owns Little Brown, my publisher, Hachette and Amazon were in a contra, a boring contract dispute, um, and Amazon was trying to pressure Hachette to go with their terms by removing the pre-order option for all Hachette titles. So you could not pre-order my book, and I was understandably very upset and anxious and, you know, I tried to be a really good writer for my publisher and done all the publicity things I could for them and I had written the best book I could possibly do at that time in my life as a writer and I was really freaked out. Um, And then Stephen Colbert, who's also published by Hachette, decided that he wanted to talk about the issue on the show, the Colbert Report, and um, he had the writer Sherman Alexi come on, who also is a Hachette writer, just kind of have somebody charismatic to talk about the issue with, I guess. And Sherman Alexi decided to champion a debut novel when he went on the show that was being affected by the dispute. And so he chose mine. And Colbert asked his nation to pre-order my book from Powell's, the independent bookstore in Portland, to kind of say, suck it to Amazon. And <laughs> it kind of went crazy. And Colbert took it as like a pet project that says to get me on the bestseller list. And from there, like, so before my book even came out, I had pre, like, there were, like, 4,000 pre-orders from Powell's in, like, two days, and then it just grew wow. and was this sort of media sensation to some degree, um, and I was just completely flabbergasted by the whole, that's not something that I had fantasized about, I mean, I wasn't complaining, but it was just so strange to suddenly 
have my books be in the limelight. Um, and it made me realize actually how difficult it is to get that much, how difficult it is to get that kind of publicity. Um, because my book before that, I wasn't beyond the Amazon worries. I felt like it was doing pretty well. It had some good pre-publication reviews, and it was in, you know, in those, like, 10 best summer reads kind of things in magazines and stuff. Um, right. But when that happened, I was getting suddenly, there was so much more interest in it than before, and it was just a different, totally different experience. I went on this, like, 20 bookstore tour, and when I went on Colbert later, <laughs> it was just totally insane. <laughs> so that's what, the, that's what happened. Um, yeah, and, it got and you did a good job on Colbert, by the way. Oh, thank you. I was so nervous. When, I, when they told me it was going to happen. You did not happen, look nervous. I, well, you know, actually, a few, it's usually older men have been like, you were so nervous when I saw you on TV. They're also <laughs> I mean, I was nervous, but I wasn't like, I feel like I was nervous, but it didn't get in the way of me having fun, so I was happy with my performance. I didn't embarrass myself, and I felt okay about it, considering I didn't have any television experience. Um, and I, afterwards, I was like, that was amazing. Let's do it again. I got, you know, once it was like, now I can go on TV all the time. It's so fun. And he's a really yeah. nice guy, as you would think. He's just really a lovely person. He seems really, gen- he was very genuine, and everyone who worked there seemed really happy to be there. And it was one of the last shows, so that was exciting. It was cool. Aww. I'm not going to lie. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah so that we'll was put a clip baby. up in the show notes. Oh, yeah, so you can see me and my, I don't you look like that. Her. I have, like, my hair down and stuff. <laughs> Your, it's your whole, um, your TV persona. Yes, my TV look. Exactly. Yes. Very glamorous. So that's what happened with California. Yeah. So and it's kind of ironic. The, I mean, the, book is, the book is not at all about, um, not at all about sort of what you typically think of as California, but it's very funny that that, that publicity experience feels like, ooh, glamour, Hollywood. You know, the book is kind of the opposite. Even though yeah, it's about the end of the world. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. I uh, argue that Hollywood is the end of the world. But that's true. But that, that was something you couldn't, <laughs> right. <laughs> you couldn't have anticipated. I mean, that's not something, I mean, people have certain kinds of fantasies about publishing books, right? Like, ooh, Definitely. I hope I'll get, you know, a review in the, you know, the, the book review in the New York Times or something. Like, there, there are sort of standard fantasies, not, you know, I'm going to be on the Colbert Report and it's going to explode my reviews and I'm going to be hugely successful on Powell's. I mean, those are all yeah. very unusual I know. options. It was, it, was, it was such a particular experience. And I feel like I came, I came into publishing the book, I felt pretty clear-eyed about it. Like, I had worked in bookstores for a long time. And I knew other friends who had published books, so I knew that it was sort of an emotional roller coaster in terms of the vulnerability that one feels when suddenly something you've been working on for years is read by strangers. My husband works at Goodreads, so I know all about, like, one-star reviews from readers. <laughs> and so I felt Although like he did I, give you a five-star review. He did, but I... Very charming. If he gave me a one-star, we'd probably, we'd probably be divorced. <laughs> um, but, you know, I felt like I... either. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. I did get some five stars. But I'm just saying I understood. I didn't think it was going to be like they were going to roll the red carpet out for me. I think sometimes when people are writing novels, you, you have to inflate your own sense of importance, at least somewhat, in order to be delusional enough to, like, spend time alone in a room doing this task, right? Like, you have to think that people are going to love it. You have to kind of delude yourself in between, like, despairing over it, right? So, but I did feel like when it was going to come out that I kind of understood what was going to happen. Like, I didn't think it was going to be, like, a blockbuster, and I didn't think it was going to, well, I hoped it wasn't going to be a total disappointment. I thought there were going to be some really good things, and I was going to get some strong reviews, but I never in a million years imagined what actually happened. So it was it was kind of great in that way that I was enabled, able to be surprised in such a, of how crazy it was, but it definitely was not something that I could see coming. I mean, who can see that coming? Nobody. Nobody. Was there any part of you, because I, I would imagine, I mean, it's even difficult for me to sort of hypothetically imagine myself in that situation, but on the one hand, I think I'd be really excited, and on the other hand, I wonder if there's part of me that would be like, whoa, too fast, this is supposed to be, did you have that it, feeling at all? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who publishes a book, I think when you, if publishing 
if writing and publishing a book is one of your dreams, then you don't, and because you've read books your whole life and you just have loved them, and you, you can't imagine how wonderful it would feel if someone, like, held your book to their chest in ecstasy in the way that you have done with some of your favorite books. Like, that just sounds like so perfect. And it really was my dream come true. It's something I wanted to do since I was literate. I wanted to write a book. I had always been a big reader, and this was the thing that I'd always wanted, and it was happening. Um, but even if you're not on the Colbert Report, there is something intense about publishing a book that I don't think you can really understand until it happens to you, and that I've had friends who have been on, like, Fresh Air or have been on the cover of the New York Times Book Review, and although they're really excited, it's so intense that you feel kind of weepy about it. Like, everybody knows how much of the book, I tell them, it's okay if you need to go into a room and cry a little bit. That doesn't mean that you're not grateful for the experience or, you know, but it just is because it's your dream and suddenly your, your most, one of your most private aspects of your life is public, that is kind of difficult to take a little bit. And for me, I mean, I was having a great time and I really forced myself to enjoy it as much as I could because I tend to overthink things and even make happy uh -huh. occasions sometimes difficult for myself. I really try yeah. to just live in the moment and be like, this will never happen again. Holy cow. This is great. But there are definitely times where I felt like I was getting so much attention and some of the reviews felt a little bit like, like I, I got this horrible NPR review. It's probably my oh. worst review. And the woman was like, does this book deserve the Colbert bump? No. It's <laughs> kind of a mean way to, to talk about a novel. Like I just didn't think it was a fair treatment. But then again, I had to ask myself, well, would the book have been reviewed on NPR had it not gotten the Colbert bump? So... I felt like of two minds about it. I was like, well, people are going to be harder on this book than other books because it's getting so much free press. So what can I do about that? You know, there's nothing I can do about it. But it was intense at times to feel like there was so much attention, and I was like, I'm not really used to this yet. But I tried to do my best and just kind of shrug off any negative aspects and just focus on the readers I was reaching because that's a huge thing. I had so many readers and so many people who reached out to me who said they liked it, and that was – Really phenomenal, but yeah, there were times. That I, there were times where I was like, "Ah, this train is going a little too fast. I don't. I'm not, I just got my seatbelt on. Like, slow down, everyone." You're like, "I didn't sign up for the Concord. I thought I was just getting on a plane." Like, I know, right? That's amazing. And the fact that the term was coined, the Colbert bump. I mean, that wasn't a thing before this, was it? Oh, it was. It was. I mean, was there, they had. There was like a definite sign of any book. That anybody, anytime an author went on Colbert, their Amazon sales ranking or whatever went up. There was always a little bump. Oh, okay. It is a term. But, I mean, I think I got the biggest Colbert bump of anyone because he was making it his mission to actually get people to read the books. So I feel extremely yeah, it was lucky. Like a, it, was, it was a political campaign. It was pretty amazing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, God bless that man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so having been through that experience, I remember um, seeing the TED Talk with, like, Elizabeth Gilbert after Eat, Pray, Love and people saying, like, how does it feel to write a book after writing Eat, Pray, Love? Like, did it feel at all like that, moving on to another book after California, or is that just a completely different thing? Um, well, first of all, I, what's really interesting is how many people want ask me this question, and I feel that there's, people have an anxiety for me, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Everyone's like, well, you had the success. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> um, and I kind of love that because I would have the same anxiety. I mean, I have it for myself, but I would have it more for somebody else because you would think, okay, you had this great thing happen. Now what do you do from there? But I am also very quick to point out that I took – um, my friend Cecil Castellucci, who's a young adult author, she was told by Amy Bender, a fiction writer we both really admire, to write before Cecil's first novel came out, Amy Bender said, the best thing you can do for yourself is to finish your next novel before your first novel comes out. Mm. So when I sold California, my friend Cecil was like, Amy Bender told me that you need to start your next book. <laughs> and I obviously did not start and finish Woman Number 17 before California came out. But the publishing schedule, I don't think a lot of people realize, was extremely slow. So I sold my book in the fall of 2012, and it came okay. out almost two years later in the summer wow. of 2014. So I had a lot of time. I mean, a lot of that time I was actually revising California or just copy edits and publicity even, you know, before the Colbert thing. It takes, like, a strangely long amount of time, even if you get one, like, 
One blogger has four questions for you to answer via email. Somehow that takes two hours. I don't know why. <laughs> um, so, but I tried really hard to write as much of my next book as I could because I did not want whatever happened to California to affect the new book. So I had 100 pages of woman number 17 before California came out. And so it kind of was whatever it was going to be. I mean, it wasn't a final draft, but I already had not It wasn't like I was facing a blank page once all the hullabaloo of California passed him by. I, I didn't have to go back to my office and say, okay, now what do I do? How do I follow that success up? I had this new novel, um, and it was it's very different from California. The voice is really distinct, but I knew that that was the book I was going to write, and it was actually really comforting when I was going through California to know that I had this other book kind of waiting for me. It was sort of like, it was like I was having a secret, like, book affair <laughs> where I could go back <laughs> and be with a woman number 17, and nobody really knew about her yet. Um, and that was really great. And it was a comfort to know that I actually missed writing. Like, publicity is fun, and I'm an extroverted person, but it's not the same thing as writing. Like, talking about your book is so different from creating the book. And it starts after a little while. It's exciting at times. It's really fun to be here. But after a time, it can be draining, just like any like kind of work event like you're going to a conference you're speaking or you're teaching for hours you start to get that kind of fatigue and so I started to really crave writing in a really pure way when I was promoting California and I was so nice to be like oh I have this book waiting for me when I get home and I didn't write didn't work on it the whole summer that California was out I just dedicated myself to publicity and traveling and I didn't feel bad if I wasn't writing I decided I was not going to write and then Fall came around, and there was a lull before the paperback, you know, stuff was coming, and I just went back to work. And in a lot of ways, it was totally the same as it had been before California came out, because it was just me in a room, and nobody cares about that except the person in the room. Um, and I will say, I mean, obviously, I have some anxiety now, like, the book is actually going to come out next year, and, like, will it do well? Will it do as well as California? What, what will it feel like? But at the same time, I'm kind of just trying to make myself, like, you know, California was on the New York Times bestseller list, and, hey, that happened to me once, so I don't need for it to happen again. I mean, if it did, that would be cool, but it's like I can already, like, check that off my list, and now I'm like, okay, well, what's the new thing that I can try to work towards? Like, what is it? Like, can Oprah like it, or can I win a prize someday? Can I, like, get a fellowship? I don't know. Something new to kind of aspire to um, without focusing on something that's already happened, if that makes sense. What's the nice thing about the New York Times bestseller? is that it's like winning an Oscar. Like, it's attached to your name forever now. Yeah, you, yeah, nobody can take, I can, I'll be the New York Times bestselling author, even if I forever. Even if every other book sells, like, one copy each, I will still be that. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to milk that for the rest of my life. Yeah, you could write some pulp erotica. You'd be all set. Doesn't then matter. I would probably get back on it, though, <laughs> <laughs> if I were going to write that. I know, maybe. I mean, we can, we can talk about... You know, New York Times best-selling author of California, woman number 17, and a surprising collection of pulp erotica. Yeah, right. I can write, like, epic poetry, and I could still be a New York Times bestseller. I know. Epic poetry might be might be the next big thing. The sky know. is the limit, Caroline. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like epic poetry might be, like, the new genre for literary hipsters. It's true. It's like people who read Maggie Nelson, they're moving towards epic poetry. Yeah, they just want to go back, go back to the, the ballad and the... To the beginning. <laughs> to the, all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. So how is, um, how is that process? So now you're really in it again, and you've submitted your original draft, or where are you in the process with Woman Number 17? So Woman Number 17 was different from California in that California I wrote over, I think it took me three years just to get to a draft that I... Was I thought my agent and I thought was good enough to publish, and then another year after that of edits. Um, in this time, I actually sold Woman Number Seventeen uh, in the fall after California came out, and then um, I think in the fall, yeah, in the fall. Um, and I had so it was a, I sold it on what's called a partial. So I sold it with like 150 pages. So I had those 100 pages. I worked on 50 more, and then I revised those. And then I sold it on that chunk. So I sold the book not totally finished, which in some ways it sounds like it could freak you out. You're like, wait, now you have to finish this book? Like, what? Who knows? But, and I, I don't think I would ever want to sell a book based on, like, a sentence of what it's going to be. 
but never say never. Oh, God. <laughs> I wouldn't. But there was something really nice about knowing that I had, like, knowing that I had a deadline that was really useful to be like, okay, well, this book, I sold it, I think, in November, and they gave me a full year, which was I thought was a good amount of time to finish it. So I turned it in. I turned in the complete draft last October, right before I gave birth to my second child. Right. Then, that, we should talk about that. Anyway, not the actual first. <laughs> that's another. That's a separate podcast. Um, you sold it in October, gave birth, and then and how then much time years. did they give you? And then it's coming out next year. So you've got about a year. Yeah. So and a half. actually, yeah. So there, it's a it's a much faster process than California in that. So I turned it in. I turned in the first draft at the October of 2015, and then I went on maternity leave and didn't hear about it. And then in February, I talked to my editor who had notes, and then she gave me her notes on the book, and she then gave birth. <laughs> and while she was on maternity leave for the last, whatever, February till recently, I revised based on her notes, and I she just came oh, back from maternity time. leave, and I turned it back in. So now she's had it for, I think, a couple weeks now, and I think I'm going to get it back. I don't know. I don't know how editors work. I don't, it's still mysterious. Even after the second book, I don't know when to expect the back. But I think it will go through one more um, quicker round of edits based on notes this time around. But I don't think it will be anything extreme because I think you have to have it through copy editing sometime in September or so. Like, they have to start putting it in the pipeline. Got it. And then is it going to come out in the spring? It comes out, yeah, next. We haven't gotten a date, but I think like April or May. I mean, of course, this could all change, but at this point, that's kind of the general schedule, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different now. It's different to turn in a book that the editor has seen the beginning of. I mean, I didn't turn it in with an outline, but it was just a different experience. I didn't have to write the whole book and wonder if anyone wanted it. I, you know, I knew that there was a particular person waiting on the end for it, and it feels it's a little bit faster. There's fewer revisions, which makes me feel happy on my, it feels like improved as a writer, <laughs> that I don't need as many revisions. <laughs> Um, and, yeah, then it will just be out, and I don't have a choice. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> so is it Little Brown again that you're working with? It's not. This time it's going to be with Hogarth, which is an imprint of Crown. And okay. And they do, like, Anthony Mara and Michelle Faber and lots of great literary novels and story collections. And they do a lot of international literature, which is kind of, kind of neat. Awesome. And then is this yeah. editor tied to that publisher, or is this an editor you've worked with before? She's new. So, <laughs> Little Brown didn't love, the, this is kind of an interesting twist of the story. We're really going to get into it here. Um, Little Brown, yeah. we sh my editor, my agent sent my Little Brown woman number 17 as a partial, and they didn't fall in love with it. And we, and then they eventually made an offer, and it was sort of not what we were hoping to get. And then my agent sent it to Lindsay Segnet at Crown, who she happens to be, like, Anthony Marr's editor and Killian Flynn's editor and Terry McMillan's editor. She's, like, big time. And she went yeah. bananas for it in this way that I was really, I mean, delighted by. Um, so, and then she got everyone at Crown to read it, and everyone loved it there. So it felt sort of sad to leave Little Brown, but I wanted house that really supported the book because it seems really important to have like housewide support for a novel so that's where I went oh, yeah. it was kind of strange to move um, and I had a very sad phone call with my publicist at Little Brown whom I adore um, but my editor at Little Brown actually left publishing so it wasn't like I had that long time tie with somebody there that I wasn't going to work with anymore um, but now my publicist and I will just be best friends we don't have to work together anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can just hang out. <laughs> yeah, because we ended up so uh, the summer of twenty four. The summer of twenty four, seeing the publicist and I, I feel like I saw her more than anyone. Like we emailed all the time. We were in New York together. I mean, it just felt like because of the whole whirlwind thing, it was like, oh, Carrie and I were always together. So I feel very connected to her. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. It was a twenty the, city tour. My God. Well, she didn't go on the tour with me. Obviously, I'm not that. I'm not that high of a high of a roller. But I did email <laughs> with her regularly during the tour. Uh huh. So. Yeah. Nice. Well, not Pretty yet. Cool. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe next time I'll get my own. Like, um, I'll have like a carrier person. <laughs> a handler. Yeah, That's what they're called. <laughs> like, what's the word? 
<laughs> a handler. Well, if you're really tired, like my my feet hurt, I need to be carried. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, alluding to the first, so you have two children, plus yes. you have a writing school, and you're a novelist. So, how do you balance all of those things? Ah, uh, well, I will say that now I'm no, I'm, I'm no longer running the writing school. Um, I'm, I'm more, well, Chris Daly, who was teaching nonfiction, she came on as a co-director, and then she's now the full director, and I just sort of help on the sidelines with scheduling or questions that come up. Um, and I'm leading, I'm director of special projects, which is the title I made up for myself, um, nice. to do other things that we've always wanted to do, but we don't have quite have the time for because we're always focusing on getting the schedule out and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I knew something had to go at some point when I had my second child, and that was what went. Because right now, I'm actually, I don't live in L.A. anymore, and so I was doing, it just became a lot of administrative work that I just couldn't keep up with. Um, but when people ask me this question about kids and writing, I always say, I have child care. That is the number one way to get writing done. Um, because I have so many writing friends, all of them are mothers. Um, most, I shouldn't say all, but most of them are mothers, and they're not getting the writing done because they're taking care of the kids while the husband is earning the money, um, which makes sense. Somebody has to earn the money somewhere, right? Um, yeah. And so the writing, the writing mothers that I, I'm really, like, in awe of are the ones who manage to write books without childcare. They do it, like, in the middle of the night. <laughs> Those are the people that really deserve all the, you know, accolades. Um, for me, I mean, my son, at this point, he goes to school five days a week till 4 o'clock, and my daughter, she is a babysitter three times a week. So I have to be really efficient with my time because I have less time than I did before, but I do have the time to work. Um, when I was writing California, I was teaching um, at night and on the weekends, and I had much less child care, but I had my mother, so I had some free child care, which made a lot of difference. So I, have, nice. like, I think I had like 15 hours a week. I had one babysitter for one day, and then my mom came two days or something like that. Um, so I could eke out. In that time, I was very focused, and I would work on my teaching stuff for an hour or two, and then I would pivot and work on my novel writing. But actually, I worked on the novel writing first, because if you put the novel writing fast, you'll never do it. <laughs> That's what I learned very quickly. Um, so I would write, 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 and then pivot and do my teaching prep, class prep, you know. Um, yeah, and I was take just as much time as you them. Yeah, and you know, I had a novel that I tried to sell before California that was rejected by, like, every publishing house in America. <laughs> and then I got pregnant, and I was writing California right before I got pregnant. And through my pregnancy, I was still writing it, and I had my baby, and I was like, okay, my life's over. I'm never going to publish a book. I have this baby now, and I've ruined my life. What happened to the ambitious person that I thought I was? But actually, that was, like, one day where I had this, like, pity party. And then actually my ambition, like, grew fangs and fur. I was like, this is not something I'm giving up. And I actually was much more driven after I gave birth to my first child. I was like, I need, I need my book. And I sold it a year after his birth, around a year after. So I felt like I did what I really wanted to do. And I almost feel like I frittered, frittered away so much time before that when I didn't have to pay for time. I just was, like, spending it unwisely. So I think actually parenthood has helped me a lot in terms of getting work done and feeling like... Well, I have, I'm, like, sometimes when the babies are the new baby, like, one, I'm, I'm not with her. She's probably, like, doing something that she's never done before, and I'm not there to see it. And, two, I'm paying $16 for an hour to write. So if I waste that hour on Twitter, then I'm just a jerk. <laughs> so I need to work. And it's been very helpful. It's a very good motivator. Yeah, I think pressure can sometimes help. I think it depends on your personality type. It sounds like, like, I can't waste this really kicked it up and that's helpful yes and I also that's not to say that you need to have children to be a writer either like the other <laughs> side of the point is like before I had kids I should have been more proactive and gone to more writing colonies but I did go twice before I had kids and realized how useful they were and so I've really tried to keep doing that when I can um, but sometimes the, so the flexibility of not having young children also can be a gift I think as long as you are not like I was and like I don't know what I was doing, watching The Bachelor or something. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were having experiences you could put into it later? I don't know. It's true, yeah. I was living life to the fullest. 
you how did you get the idea for California? And then I don't know how much you can say about woman number seventeen at this point, but I'm always curious where the ideas for books come from. Uh, let's see, California. It came to me in a couple of ways. Um, I this phrase. I've told a story, and every time I tell them, I'm like, God, I sound like a doofus. But I said <laughs> this phrase. Uh, post-apocalyptic domestic drama as like a genre mashup. I don't know what I thought, but I thought that would be so neat to read. I would love for someone to write that book, but I didn't think I was going to write it. I thought it was just a great idea. And I didn't think I was going to write it because I had never read anything that was speculative or whatever, post-apocalyptic. But it kind of just wouldn't let me go. And I just started thinking about it and kind of imagining this husband and wife at the end of the world and what that world was like and what they were like. Um... And one time I was on an Echo Park in L.A. driving on Sunset, and the streetlights above had gone out, and it was just really eerie. And I started thinking, like, well, what if this is what L.A. was like in the book? And, you know, there's no, there's no services. And then that, you know, I just started to, like, snowball hypotheticals. Um, and then, actually, I was in I – I like to do writing exercises with my students sometimes. Mm. So that I – it's helpful, actually, to time how long – when you're not doing the exercise, it's hard, to, it's hard to know how long they're going to need to do the exercise until you're actually doing it um, yourself. So I would do the exercises with them and kind of feel like, okay, it feels like we could save some more minutes here. So I started doing this exercise with them that's right about a character with a possession that no one else knows they possess. And I wrote about Frida, the wife of the book, and she had a right. baster, and it was a secret possession, and her husband didn't know about it, and she was in this weird house, and they were living in the woods. And it's not that different from the opening scene of the book, which <laughs> it's, that's really weird because when you do a writing exercise, when you're writing, especially you're writing by hand, some of the stuff that comes out is just so absurd because you're just – your brain is just kind of spitting out whatever comes to you. Like, I hadn't planned to do the tricky baster. Um, but because you have a tricky baster, my brain skipped to her being pregnant. And so then suddenly she was pregnant, which was not something I had planned for the novel at all. But then she was pregnant, and there were all these traumatic possibilities. Um, and that's really when the characters started to coalesce around certain things. That this is a woman who keeps secrets over kind of stupid things. And, oh, my God, she's mm-hmm. pregnant. And she's, it's obvious that she's in love with her husband. And... So once the characters were there, I knew, I was like, oh, here it is. This is the book. <laughs> and I'm going to have to do it. There. I'm going to have to do it. So with it, so how did you then, so that whole story follows, and you all can read the book and see where it goes. Um, but then you said that woman number 17 goes in a completely different direction. So did the idea come from a completely different process, or how did that one happen? Hmm. Well, I mean, the reason why California, I think California is actually a departure for me because it takes place in the future. Um, most of my work, I feel like, is very contemporary. It's sort of about what it's like to be alive at this exact moment in time, and I am very much interested in that. And I, that's not to say that speculative fiction also isn't in its own way about that as well. But I think California's subject matter, this, the content made the form a particular way. And with woman number 17, it's about two women in L.A. One is in her early 30s and one is in her early 20s, and it's about sort of about their relationship. Um, and it's, so it's just much more contemporary. There's, you know, I got to, I, it was so liberating to just, like, describe the world as I know it. There wasn't, the world building that happened was just a sort of automatic world building that happens when you describe something that you already know. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was really freeing. Um, but there are some interesting similarities. It, it is also two-person point of, like, you know, California is Frida's perspective and Cal's perspective, and it alternates. So this book, one lady is the older woman. She starts the novel narrating, and then it goes to Esther. They're first, it's first person instead of third person, which I think makes a big difference in terms of its storytelling quality. Um, but there's a lot that's similar in a way. I think the time frame is similar. I think it's like a six-week time frame again. Time frame again. So I, it's kind of fun now, now that I'm almost done with Woman Number 17, to kind of place them side by side and say, okay, like, well, what am I doing similarly or what are my, what are my kicks as a writer? What are my interests? I think there's still a lot more about intimacy in this book, just like in California. 
um, and the past and not trauma still is very much there. But then there's all these other topics that I was really excited to write about. Like it's way more about womanhood. It's a lot about mothering. There's a lot of people with mom problems. Um, and there's a lot of explicit stuff about making art because Esther, the younger character, is an artist. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, but the thing about the new book is that there's no elevator pitch. i got to work on it. <laughs> yeah, people are like, how's it about? And I just start rambling. <laughs> ladies. Ladies in LA. Yeah, I keep saying ladies and their problems, but people are like, oh, I fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. No, it'll come. I mean, you know yeah. how to talk a good game. You got it. Yeah, i got to work on it's, 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 it's starting to form. I'll, by, by, like, January, I'll be ready. Yeah, you've got time. That's yeah. good. So what are you reading now? I always love hearing about what you're reading. What are you oh, liking? Uh, let's see. I just finished um, – I've been reading a few books that are coming, aren't out yet. Um, I just finished Leaving Lucy Pear by a friend from graduate school. Her name is Anna Solomon. Um, and she writes – I guess she didn't in graduate school, but she now it's the second book, and they're both historical. So this takes place during Prohibition era in – New England, and it has like a third-person kind of expansive quality to it where it goes into different people's perspectives, um, and it starts with a woman abandoning her baby below a pear tree, and, a, and then the, so, so it's about that woman and then the family that picks her up, and there's a lot of like local politics of the time. It was great, and it was also so great because it's unlike anything that I have ever written or would be able to write, and I especially like that kind of fiction. Um, I also just finished Ramona Ossibel's new book, um, oh. Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty. Um, and that's about a family. It starts, it's in the, it takes place in the 70s, and it's about a rich family. Two, the both of husband and wife come from money, um, and they suddenly, there's no more money left all of a sudden. It's kind of like what happens to them, but Ossibel's writing is very kind of quirky and there's a giant in it, there's, and the children are sort of, both parents go off on their separate, like, sagas of figuring out who they are, and they leave, they forget, each thinks the other parent is with the children, and then the oh, children no. are left alone, and, and they kind of start this magical existence, left to their own devices, I don't know, it was really great, and the, the prose, oh my god, the prose was just, like, so buttery and sensual, and like every moment there was something to see or smell or taste. And I just felt like, you know, with that kind of book where you feel like your own perspective is sort of widening, like reading poems, that's how it would have felt like. When did they come out? Oh, oh Ramona's book is out now. It just came out like okay. Tuesday. I know, it's like, um, that sounds familiar. So, yeah, it's okay. been around it's out. town. And Anna's yeah. book comes out in at the end of July. It's a very good book. Oh, great, so soon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, I feel like I just, I, I just got, um, I just exited, I don't know why I used that word, I exited a period of intense reading very quickly. Like for a long, I was slogging through um, some Charles Dickens, David Copperfield uh-huh. specifically, and I actually did not like it. I started really liking it, and then it got so slow, and I started not wanting to read it, and it was one of those situations where I was never reading, and then I felt depressed. <laughs> And then finally, I actually did something I don't usually do. I stopped reading it like 90 pages from the end. And I had been, I had been reading it for like two and a half months, and I was just like, enough is enough. And as soon as I dropped it and I picked up some contemporary novel that I wanted to read, I just felt so much better. I just felt like, ah, finally, I feel like I'm reading for fun again. And I have read, of course, older novels that I love that feel relevant to my personal experience. But for some reason, that book just couldn't do it anymore. So I almost am there's like in of what I read. <laughs> I think there's some books that are like that. They kind of hold you hostage in a way. I felt that way about Dr. Zhivago when they did the oh. new translation of it. I was like, I should read this. And it was so Russian, and there was so much hand-pressing and so much <laughs> flinging on the ground that I had to, like, I would read, like, 50 to 75 pages, and then I would read something, like, completely different. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm going back in. And okay. I'm like, I'm like I know, it was like, i got to go back in. And did you finish it? I did finish it, but I don't understand why. Because I'm actually <laughs> at the point it. now where I'm, like, rounding in on 40, and I'm like, okay, it's okay to stop reading. And my dad, actually, who just turned 70 this year, 
had almost like a whispered phone conversation with me this year. I said, can I ask you something? Do you ever just stop reading a book? And I'm like, the poor man. Like, why do we do this to ourselves? Do you, you know Alice Hill, right, who is the president of Romans and Books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. She has this, I don't know if it's her own rule or she got it from somewhere, but I have used it. Um, you take, you go to whatever age you are, so let's say you're 40, you, uh, you take 100 pages and then you subtract your age, and that's how many pages uh-huh. you have to read before you give up. So your dad is 70, uh-huh. right? That, that he has to read, he, can, he has to read to page 30. Uh-huh. And then so he can it. decide it. That's it. So, like, if you're younger, you have to read more. But as you get older, that means one page less that you have to read if you're not interested. Oh, so, so great. I think it's a great rule. I mean, but I not. I almost feel like it's a slippery slope. That after I quit David Copperfield, I was like, I don't want to be one of those people who has like a bunch of untasked finished books all over her house. But I'm not that kind of person. I just won't be. I'm too neurotic to not finish most books. Yeah, I wonder if those of us who are obsessed with books and obsessive readers are just more mental people anyway, and we're just more obsessive, and and we're probably, probably safer. Anybody who has to have, like, a whispered conversation with someone else about whether it's okay. If you're I don't think we should worry about red. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's like the existential crisis. Like, when I was eight and had a nervous breakdown because I, well, light, not an actual, because I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to die someday, and there's going to be books I haven't read. I know. Um, it's a very sad thought. That was like my first uh, encounter with your Aww, little Caroline. <laughs> Caroline, you know, it was like my first like nerd breakdown. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I am really that. excited to have heard all of this. It's so helpful to hear about your process and different books. And then do you already have a um, – an inkling of who's coming after woman number 17? My new secret book lover? I do have a new secret book lover. Ooh. Um, very sexy because we haven't met yet. Ooh. Just the idea of her is pretty sexy. <laughs> <laughs> um, lady. I have, it's, well, I don't know. She has actually more of a masculine vibe, so who knows what it is. Hmm. <laughs> I guess woman number 17 was definitely a lady, so maybe not the mix it up. A lady, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I have these sort of, you know, in the way that when you get an idea that's sort of glittering at the edges, but it's very spotty. So my goal is to finish this book, turn in the copy edits, and then immediately start kind of drafting. I, my goal is to get 100 pages of it before then. That's just, it seemed to work well last time around. So I really would love to write 100 pages before Woman Number 17 comes out. We'll see how it That sounds like the secret weapon. I think it's good. Everybody should do it. I think it's a great idea. I love it. Why not? Well, thank you so much for for coming on and, and talking to us as we uh, plumb the mysteries of the, the book world. Thank and you for having me, letting you ramble on and on about various topics. <laughs> I think I think they were all fascinating. So, and I really don't think you, nobody rambles as much as they think they do about themselves. No, and it's a podcast, so you know they're made for rambling. <laughs> It's true. It's true. And then you'll have to come back and tell us about your new book lover when you know more. Oh, yeah. For now, I'm there. I'm keeping it mom because, you know, if you talk about something too early, it's, it ruins it. No, no, no. You can't have a public affair. It's not sexy. <laughs> so hide, hide her away for now, and then uh, we'll be waiting when you're ready to talk about okay. it. Perfect. Thank you so and much. And if I see you in a few months, you can give me a cocktail, and I'll probably tell you all about it. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast, where we're going deep inside the world of books. You can listen to all episodes on iTunes. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes can be found online at secretlibrarypodcast.com. To stay up to date and hear about future episodes, please subscribe to Footnotes, my newsletter, on the site. You can also find out about coaching with me, Caroline, and get book prescriptions and other goodies at carolinedonahue.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much, and until next week, happy reading.
Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.